Great to see you all, church family. Uh, It's great to see you as well. If you're new here today and you're visiting us, then warm welcome. I'm James, one of the leaders here at New Life. It's great to have you here with us. Um, Thanks, Nigel, for bringing that word to us. It's... um, when, you could, when we go through periods of transition and there's change and, and so on in life and in church life, um, we can feel a bit uncertain, can't we? And um, uh, there can be fear cre- creeping in and, and all sorts of uncertainty and insecurity. And I thought that, that word was really helpful, that uh, in Christ we're seated in heavenly places and our position in Christ brings our security, that the Father's constant approval on Christ is ours. And that regardless of we're in this moment in time or in this moment in time, he's our security and the pleasure that we experience from the Father. So that was a really helpful word. I think that's what we were talking, Nigel was talking about when he's talking about seeing uh, the world from the throne of Christ as we're seeing it from uh, that sense of approval from Christ so that our foundation and our security is found in him. Uh, do be uh, turning to 1 Corinthians 16. If you've got a Bible, no problem. It will pop up on the screen a bit later. We're uh, finishing our series on 1 Corinthians, which we started, I think, well over a year ago now. Um, we've very much enjoyed going through a book of the Bible together and um, uh, looking forward to preaching today on 1 Corinthians 16, 5 uh, to 24. Um, looking at Paul, really, and what were the passions in his life? He lived a passionate life. What were the passions in his life? What were the values that he held? which you see ooze throughout the letter um, and which affected the, you know, particularly you see it in this um, uh, passage at the end. When I was a teacher, um, there was uh, something I used to call the fake cough and it was incredibly contagious. If you've been a teacher, you will have experienced this, usually during a test where the class is silent, sat there, um, either taking the test or wondering and uh, you know regretting the fact they hadn't listened in previous lessons and not taking the test therefore, um, and there would uh, you know one student might have a genuine cough perhaps with a you know a, a good hearty cough and a, you know clearly clearly ill and then you would get this around the room, <coughs> and it spread like wildfire and suddenly. Every child in the classroom has a cough. Because coughing, a bit like when people yawn, it's contagious, isn't it? And then other people yawn and so on. And I used to find that with coughs in the classroom during our retests. Um, and it's the same with our lives, isn't it? You know, at the moment, Florence is copying everything that Sebi does. So Sebi brushes his teeth, Florence brushes her teeth. I walk in the door and Sebi shouts, Daddy. Florence shouts, Daddy. If Sebi washes her hands... Uh, Florence washes her hands. He wants a snack. She wants a snack. Sebi hops on mummy's shoulders during worship. Florence wants to go on daddy's shoulders during worship. <laughs> and so on and so forth. And that's true of our lives, isn't it? We can, they're contagious. Um, they can be contagious in a positive way or in a negative way. We, um, the decisions we make, the way we live our life, our attitudes, our beliefs, the way we hold ourselves. They're contagious and they can have a positive or negative influence on one another. And the way we live our life as a church, as a people, as a community can be contagious as as well. The way of the world can be contagious. Um, One writer said that the the walls of the church seep. That either the influence of the church kind of seeps through the walls out into the world or it, it goes the other way. And the ways of the world seeps through the walls of the church 
into our lives as a people. And there are passions and values that Paul has that ooze throughout the letter, but they come into sharp focus here in this passage that we're about to read to this dearly loved but troubled church. And Paul's passion throughout the letter, he hopes, will be contagious to the church, that they'll take a hold of the things that he's passionate about. They'll influence them and change their ways for the better and help them to follow Jesus obediently. Um, So we'll have a look at the passage. It's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5 onwards. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. He's not unsure whether he's going to go. He's just reflecting the nature of travel at their time. It's a bit. It's not like getting in your car and hopping somewhere. There's a certain sense of certainty to it. It's a bit more like waiting for a bus. You know, I hope to do this, but it might not happen just because of the nature of travel. He <laughs> um, goes on. Uh, but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries... When Timothy comes, uh, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it's not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus um, were the first converts um, uh, were the first converts in Archaea, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus because they've made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, So we're having a look at Paul and the passions that he had. And the first passion that we see throughout Paul's letter and, and in this part of the passage is his passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. His passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ was for it to be the foundation of Corinthian church life. He wanted it to be the kind of bedrock of the way that they lived their lives. And it leads him to say that he doesn't want to just make a fleeting visit and pass by, but he, he desires to stay a good amount of time amongst them, laying foundations, as was his habit, determined to see fruit in their life as a church and in the way that they lived the gospel out. And in fact, the, the plans that Paul lays out here don't quite work out um, from 2 Corinthians uh, 1 and 2. And we see that either 
Timothy's visit wasn't received particularly well. We know that Paul was a bit nervous about how Timothy might be received, and so perhaps he's a bit unsure. Uh, maybe that visit didn't go particularly well. Or perhaps Timothy went and he just found the situation a lot worse than he was expecting and fairly alarming. And so it seems that Paul um, made a sudden visit to Corinth to ensure his labors to help them be a gospel-shaped church don't become fruitless and ensnared by the issues that he writes about here. So his initial travel plans reveal his passion for the gospel. He doesn't want to just pass by. He wants to lay proper gospel foundations in the church. But he also wants to pass through Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, and Berea, all throughout Macedonia. And this is significant because if we read through Acts 16 and 17, we hear of um, Paul's experiences in those places previously. And Paul's experience in those places was one of constant opposition and persecution. He is constantly fleeing for his life from those places. He was not welcomed there. The gospel was transforming life in a way that people didn't appreciate. And he faced much opposition, often uh, at the peril of death. And so despite this opposition and danger and persecution that he, he would face, his passion for the gospel was that he would preach the gospel so that it would take heart, uh, root in people's hearts and that the gospel communities would be founded. And we know that Paul as well is writing from Ephesus and that his passion for the gospel means that he wants to stay in Ephesus. He's been preaching there for about two and a half years in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, people from all over Asia had been hearing the gospel and coming to hear him speak. And he says in verse 9 that a wide door for effective work has opened up. And despite all the opposition that he's facing. So the context of Ephesus at that point, if we read later in Acts 19, 21 to 41, we see that just after this letter was probably dispatched and given to Stephanus and friends and brought back to Paul, that soon after that, there was a riot in Ephesus that Paul was in the middle of. And that what had happened was uh, there was a silversmith called Demetrius who was angry that people were turning from worshipping the goddess Artemis. Um, they had previously been buying s- statues and idols that had been made by Demetrius, and he was losing business because of Paul's preaching of the gospel. People were turning from idolatry and turning to follow Jesus. And so they were no longer buying Demetrius's idols and statues. And he was angry about this. He gathered together similar tradesmen, and they dragged Paul through the streets into a hall. There was a whole commotion about it, and Paul's life seemed in danger. So at this time of writing, Paul's desire is to stay in Ephesus, despite the fact that this opposition is mounting and he's clearly aware of the fact that people are very unhappy about him and don't want him there. So in the face of such opposition, Paul's resilience is kind of undergirded by this passion for the gospel, that many people are responding to the gospel in Ephesus and he wants to stay there, despite the fact that he might lose his life for it. Because the passion for the gospel is a foundation of his life. And his passion for the gospel as well is why he sticks his neck out in relationships. He says things that he knows are going to be unpopular that people might not accept. Um, so if we have a look at uh, the way he talks about Stephanus and his friends, that despite the Corinthians' opposition to Stephanus, who's probably come back with a report of how, what things are like in the church, 
and perhaps uh, as one of those who's loyal uh, to Paul and likely one of the, the leaders in the church, Paul says, subject yourself to Stephanus, give him recognition. And so he sticks his neck out where he might receive opposition from the Corinthians. It's why he pleads with the Corinthians to receive Timothy as well. They don't, Paul's not really flavor of the month in Corinth. And uh, Timothy's, you know, his spiritual sons are very much part of his crowd and part of his party. Uh, and yet still, Paul pleads with them, receive him well in peace. It's also why he urges Apollos to visit them, despite the fact that this means if Apollos goes and has an influence in the church in Corinth, it means Paul will have less of an influence. He's not so bothered about the influence he will have. He's more concerned about a passion for the gospel in the church life that it would be its foundation. So he's not really bothered whether it's him who goes or Apollos who goes. And so he sticks his neck out and tries to urge Apollos to go, um, which he refuses. This is all because of Paul's passion for the gospel. So Paul's passion for the gospel dictated his travel plans. It was the reason for him interrupting and changing his travel plans. It was the reason for his persistence in the face of opposition. And it was the reason for him sticking his neck out in relationships and saying things that probably wouldn't be heard that well. Paul's passion for the gospel was a foundation in his life and it dictated everything that he did. So is the, is the gospel and um, gospel work a foundation in, in our lives individually and for us as a church? Does it dictate our plans for the future? So when we're deciding things like moving house or applying for a job, spending our money or using our time, whether it's the making of our um, priorities, how we use our retirement years, all of these things, is the gospel a foundation in life that dictates and determines the decisions that we make? It did for Paul, and it should for us too. I remember some friends from uh, King's. I was doing some student work at a church in Norwich where I've come from, uh, and one of the guys, a couple on the team, um, were faithful in uh, work to international students and shared the gospel with them. And they decided they wanted to go on holiday a few weeks away, and they were going to travel around Asia. And the way that they structured their holiday was that they were going to stop by international students who had become Christians while studying in the UK, but had gone back home, were struggling, perhaps uh, church isn't really a thing in their home country, so they're kind of relying on Skype and things like that, and reading their Bible just themselves, no church around. And they stopped off and saw all these international student friends who'd become Christians to encourage them to do them good. They shaped their whole holiday around visiting these folks. A passion for the gospel dictates our plans in life. Does the passion for the gospel as well bring about a perseverance in the face of opposition and persecution? Um, Perhaps where we face disappointment as well. Are there aspects of living out the gospel that we kind of lose strength for, as it were? and kind of give up on. Perhaps it's saying no to something that we're doing habitually that we know isn't following Jesus. Maybe it's a key lifestyle decision. Perhaps it's sharing our faith with friends where it doesn't go well, we kind of lose lose energy and passion for it. Perhaps it's um, 
praying for healing. Sometimes it happens once or twice, but then I've prayed so many times and it hasn't, and just kind of lost the energy for it. Do we stick our neck out in relationships with brothers and sisters here? Do we need to confront friends um, about their decisions they're making or their lifestyle and go out of our way, stick our neck out in relationships for the sake of the gospel? Because Paul's passion for the gospel oozed from his life. It oozes throughout the letter, and he hoped it would be contagious for the Corinthians and would lead to their greater obedience to Jesus. Now, the second thing that Paul's passionate about is for teamwork. The Corinthians had been uh, caught up in Greek lifestyle and culture, and the Greeks celebrated personality. They had great heroes great heroines. They had stories of these folks. They put figures and people in public life on pedestals. And they were doing the same with Christian leaders. Earlier in the letter, we see how there's you know, followers of Paul and followers of Apollos and followers of Peter. And that there's these kind of factions um, set up by personality and by um, individual leaders. And People were using, in the church were using the names of leaders to kind of assert their superiority in an argument. And Paul doesn't indulge them in this, neither does Apollos when he refuses to pay a visit. Um, Paul's the one who planted the church. He preached the gospel there and saw people become Christians. He laid the church's foundation. And in all of this, he demonstrates his passion for teamwork. So how does he do that? Well, first, he urges Apollos to visit which means Apollos might succeed where Paul has failed. Like I said before, he's not bothered about whether who succeeds in the situation with the Corinthians to lead them to obedience to Christ. He just wants it to happen. So if it's going to be Apollos, yeah, fine, Apollos, please go. They seem to really like you, your flavor of the month there. They're not so hot on me at the minute. Would you go? And, and he's like, no, he has, no I'm not, you know. <laughs> but Apollos, I think, is probably a bit like, well, I don't really want to get involved and just kind of satisfy their desire to have me come. Um, he sends Timothy to resolve issues rather than um, him be the answer to every problem. Rather than Paul be the hero to every situation and difficulty the Corinthians have, he's happy to send Timothy to be an answer to. In verse 16, he talks of being fellow workers and laborers, and he lives this out in his life. Um, his passion for teamwork means that he works in churches with friends and fellow workers and laborers, and you see it throughout this letter. So, um, for example, he's writing the letter with Sosthenes. Uh, Timothy was a son to Paul, and he works in Corinth on his behalf. Apollos watered where Paul had planted. Peter met, likely made a visit too. Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus were loyal to Paul, and they reported to him on the issues that were faced in the church. We know at the time of writing that Aquila and Priscilla, who Paul knew from Corinth, had gone on to plant with him in Ephesus. He's not doing the Hall of Tyrannus all by himself. He's got them there helping him in it. Um, They also get later involved in the church in Rome with him. Elsewhere, we see folks like Barnabas, Titus, Epaphras. If you read through the letters of Paul, there's constant, especially at the beginning and the end of letters, there's mention of tons of names of people who were significant in ministry in those churches. Paul doesn't do anything by himself. He does it as part of a team. And what this demonstrates is that Paul's desire is not for Paul to be glorified. It's for Jesus to be glorified. It's a reminder that 
the, the church belongs to Christ. Paul doesn't have any ownership over it, neither does Apollos or Peter. They're not the owners of the church, they're the servants of the church. It's a reminder that we're servants of the church. And this has been um, Paul's emphasis since the beginning of the book. Just have a flick, if you've got a Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll just see how significant uh, this is at the start of his letter. And we'll just see that Paul's desire is for Jesus to be glorified in Corinth, not himself. Paul... Uh, This is verse 1, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, later down, um, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I give thanks to, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. Um, who will sustain you to the end, verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Uh, Later on. Uh, For Christ did not send me, verse 17, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Ongoingly, constantly mentions Christ. That's his desire. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And then he says, verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, uh, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I could could go on, but you kind of get the point. (laughs) You see, he's writing about Jesus, isn't he? It's not, it's not that Paul would be glorified, it's that Jesus Christ would be glorified in his church. That's Paul's emphasis when he's writing to the church here. So when team take responsibility for doing things, it brings about that glorification of Jesus and not the individual. So, and that should be the case for us here at, at New Life, that whether we're uh, leading the church or preaching on Sundays, whether we're uh, running PA or leading ministries or organizing events or evangelizing, running out for discipling people, our commitment should always be to teamwork. To teamwork. So that not individuals will be glorified in the church, but so that Jesus will be glorified. Individuals will play key roles, they'll initiate, sustain, lead ministries but always as part of a team, so that Jesus will get the glory. So that when we retell the story of new life, we don't retell the story of individuals, of significant ministries, but we tell of the story of the church, the ministries, the the impact, the stories uh, that Jesus has done in his church. Um, Not only this, but it follows Jesus' example himself who worked with others in ministry despite being clearly capable of doing it all on his own. So if you think about 
At the wedding in Cana, and Jesus turns the water into wine. Who is it that goes and puts the water in the jars? It's the servants. Servant. He tells the servants, go and put the water in the jars. They perform the miracle. When Jesus is feeding the 5,000, Jesus isn't the one who multiplies it. Jesus gets them to hand out the bread and the fish. The disciples are the ones that go and collect up the pieces. They're the ones doing the miracle. Jesus does things in team himself. So we see from Paul's passion for teamwork that it did him and others good as well. Timothy, despite being timid, becomes a significant worker in many of the churches. Stephanus was baptized by Paul and becomes a servant leader in it. Paul also benefits from working in team. He says in verse 18, he talks of being refreshed in spirit by Stephanus and friends' presence. This is a case for us as well, isn't it? We get refreshed by friends around us who do us good in the Lord. If maybe you've gone off and visited friends who you've worked in church life with a long time ago and you see them, you're refreshed by their presence, aren't they, in your spirit. And that's the same for us as churches as well, that we work in, in team with other churches in partnership with them and that people from other churches refresh us and do us good. So many of us would have been at the prayer meeting on Wednesday. We had Vlada and Sonia with us. They did us good, didn't they? They refreshed us. They came and brought something which did us good and stirred us on. Serving in church isn't a solo activity. It's not good to be, uh, for man to be alone, but it's a team activity. And so this is something for us to think about as we're kind of leading areas of church life and in the things that we do. Are we doing things in team? with other people around us, doing one another good, serving together. It's the way that Jesus did it. It's the way that Paul did it. Uh, the third thing is that Paul has a passion for the church, for people. It's amazing, really, <laughs> that Paul has a passion for these people. If you've re- you, As we've been reading through the letter, this is not a great church. Um, it's, it's amazing that Paul's even bothered with them, really that he's not just kind of washed his hands of them and kind of done away with them. Um, and just God thought, you know, it would just be better probably if we planted another church in Corinth and just went again. So here's some of the issues they've faced. Factions based on leaders, superiority, spiritual complex, a desire for leader heroes. There was incest in the church, lawsuits against each other publicly, extramarital sex, uncertainties about marriage. They participated in idol feasts at the temple with their mates. They abused those in church who had a weak conscience. They mistreated the poor and the have-nots in church. They had a lack of love and consideration for others and using spiritual gifts. They denied the resurrection. They thought they'd reached spiritual destination. And they opposed Paul and they belittled him. (laughs) But verse 6 and 7, in the face of all this, he wants to spend considerable time with these people. (laughs) he's not a sadist he really loves them he's got a passion for people he loves them dearly um verse six help me on my journey where previously in the church paul had refused to take any money off them um because he wanted to make it clear i'm here to preach the gospel not to take your money so he he made tents with priscilla and aquila and because they were tent makers as well, so that they wouldn't, you know, so the gospel was free of charge. But now he offers a hand of friendship and asks them for help on his journey, money, food, companions to help him go on. He's extending the hand of friendship, accepting their help. How else do we know he loves them? Verse 24, he tells them exactly that, that he loves them all. 
Um, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4 gives us an, an insight into what is in Paul's heart when he's writing these clearly difficult and painful letters. He says this, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He's not having that much fun, basically, when he's writing this letter. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. His love for the Corinthians permeates the whole of the letter. Look at chapter... 1558 says, my beloved brothers and sisters, 1 verse 4, give thanks to God. Uh, He gives thanks to God for the Corinthians. Chapter 4 verse 14, to admonish you as my beloved children. Chapter 4 verse 15, I became your father in Christ. 7 verse 35, I say this for your own benefit. Paul has a a passion for for this church, for the people who are a part of it. He loved them. In verse 10, he encourages the Corinthians to return the same and show passionate love for people. One for by receiving Timothy in peace, putting him at ease, welcoming him, receiving him. Verse 16, it says um, to be subject to Stephanus and give recognition to him. It's a similar kind of passage to 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.13, which says esteem them very highly in love because of their work. They're there to yield to Stephanus in love. Just the way that Paul, even though he's an incredible man of God, apostolic authority, he's planted the church, and many of them saved, he doesn't lord his authority over them and tell them what they should do. He yields to them in love and is their servant to the church. And even though it's painful and hard to admonish and correct them and rebuke them in these things, he does it nevertheless. So Paul is, is also following Jesus' passion for the church, for people. We know that while we were still sinners, whilst we were, when we were like these Corinthians and even worse to Christ, Christ died for us. That on the cross as he dies on our behalf for our sin, he has in mind you and I, our opposition towards him, our, our persecution of him, our mistreatment of him, our belittling of him. He, he, he forgets that, puts that aside and dies for us because he's passionate about us people and about his beautiful bride, the church. And we're to follow Jesus in this as his disciples, to love in the face of opposition, to love our enemies. And despite how difficult things get in church life and in relationships we have here with one another, We're to be persistent in our love for each other and for the church as a whole. When it'd be easier because of rejection or opposition or disagreement to persist in loving one another as we see Paul loving the Corinthians here and demonstrating it week in, week out in our house groups and in our relationships there that where things even get strained, where they're difficult, where we might have to stick our neck out, we love one another Um, through it and the final thing is this Paul has a passion for holiness the whole of this letter is a is a mix and a jumble of really harsh words and warnings and rebukes and corrections and on the same hand lots of the warm words of affection that I just shared And he's always between the two, well, kind of living out the two together. 
He's rebuking, correcting, and warning them, but on the basis of his deep love and affection for them as a church. It's full of the tension of what the Corinthians are by the grace of God and what they need to become in terms of their obedience to Jesus. This tension between what they are by the grace of God and what they need to become as obedient to Jesus. And this conclusion to the letter has more of the same. Have a look at verse 12. He expresses his desire to visit and spend time with them. I love you. I want to be with you, spend time with you. Followed by verse 13, which is a string of pretty strong imperatives. Be watchful, stand firm, be courageous, which is what act like men means, and strong, faithful to the gospel, on guard against corrosive influences in the world and in the church. They go hand in hand. It happens again in verse 22 and 24. Have a look there. Uh, throughout the letter, we've seen that many of the Corinthians are falling out of love with Paul. Many of them are in opposition, throwing accusations at him, belittling him. But despite all this, in verse, 30, verse 24, he affirms his love for them as a people, as he has done throughout. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, verse 22, uh, just beforehand, and he says... Um, he has this last word of warning to those who continue to stubbornly disobey Jesus. And he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, if anyone doesn't love the Lord in the church, let him be accursed. <laughs> Not the kind of phraseology you would associate with somebody who loves you, is it? <laughs> but he seems to manage to do the both hand in hand. I love you dearly. Let you be accursed if you don't love Jesus. <laughs> With both, we're full of conviction. Um, this, uh, this word, let, let him be accursed, is anathema in Greek. It means cut off from the people of God. Cursed is anyone who fails to love Jesus enough to change their ways from all the things I've identified as problems in the church here in Corinth and obey Jesus instead. It's full of the tension between the now and not yet of our becoming more like Jesus, of our sanctification, this is the way we are, and this is the way we will be when we see him face to face, that so we'll be changed and be like him. Um, in fact, in verse 22, Paul uses this word, Maranatha, our Lord come to urge them to obey Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is coming back again. So change your ways, obey him. He's coming. He's warning them. Jesus is coming back again. Let him find you faithful and obedient to him. And so we see this as well in the life of Jesus, in the way that he discipled people in his interactions with folks. Remember the woman caught in adultery? That um, they gathered her to stone her. And Jesus says, let the first one of you who's without sin cast the first stone. They all drop the stones, walk away. And then Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Love, forgiveness, acceptance. Next line. From now on, sin no more. Warning, correction, rebuke. Hand in hand, constantly in the life of Jesus. Let's just have a look at another together. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 16. This one's in um, about Peter. Peter. 
Um, Jesus is asking the disciples uh, who they say he is. Um, and Peter says, uh, you're the Christ, in verse 16, the son of the living God. Jesus answers, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, Petrus, it means little rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You're drawing Peter in. He's, later on, Jesus calls himself the big rock. He's saying, little rock Peter and I, the big rock, we're going to work together. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Come and join me on this and build my church. You're, you're one of my disciples. You're going to be one who's going to build my church in the future. He's pulling him near and drawing him near, drawing him close, letting him know that he loves him, that he accepts him, that he, he wants to work with him for the sake of building the church. Jump down a few lines. Jesus is telling people that he's got to suffer and die and then on the third day be raised. And on verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I, you're not doing that in a minute. Forever, whoever would save his life will lose it. I don't try and save yours and lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These two things come hand in hand. He draws Peter near. He loves him. He, he cares for him. He says, come do this with me. Build my church with me. And then on the, the next line, he's saying, get behind. He calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You, Satan is speaking through you. <laughs> it's the same as what Paul's done at the end of the letter here. The stark contrast of, I love you dearly, and strong rebuke and correction. So in our discipling of one another, we must learn to do both of these things. Because if you're not doing both of them, you're not discipling anyone. They have to happen hand in hand together as we disciple one another. We love each other wholeheartedly and we challenge and warn one another with love to follow and obey Jesus. We draw people near in love and we call them to repentance as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's passion for holiness, for wholehearted obedience to Jesus, means that he risks his reputation, he risks friendship, he risks relationship for the sake of the whole church, whom he dearly loves. All in the church who are dear friends of his, in order to bring about obedience to Jesus. So we should expect that our relationships with one another, in, in house groups especially, should have this dynamic to them. Now, I'm not suggesting you immediately rebuke and correct one another across across the meeting, but I'm saying in our relationships with one another, when you see things in each other's lives, don't just let it lie. Encourage one another to obedience to Christ, with the humility as well that you might have seen it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of seen this in your life. Yeah. You might just be wrong. You might have seen something that isn't the case. So you, see, so you go with humility, but at the same time, if you really love the person, you want them to enjoy all that Christ is and all he has for them. 
So we lead the people to the cross, one another to the cross, to follow Jesus obediently. In Ephesus, uh, Demetrius was rioting because Paul challenged his idolatry and his whole life was built on it. And when you challenge somebody, the risk is that sometimes you get read the riot act. We use that phrase, don't we? Demetrius literally rioted. Didn't even go for reading it. <laughs> just literally rioted. <laughs> Crowds in the street dragged him into the hall. Um, fortunately, they got away because somebody calmed them down. Um, but when we do this, Relationships will become strained. Fallouts will happen. Friendships can be lost. We know from what Paul did, his sudden visit to Corinth, the chances are this didn't really go down that well. And we often think, this is in scripture. Must have been totally victorious. Somebody, Stephanus comes back to church, he reads it out public and everybody goes, oh yeah, you know, Paul's so right. Oh, I should really do this. No, <laughs> that's not how it worked out. It, it, it's not like a magic wand, kind of tell people, you know, love them dearly, and then rebuke and correct them, challenge them, warn them to follow Jesus, and they just, it happens. Not, it's not the case. Sometimes you get the right act. I remember I was overseeing some life groups at King's. A friend of ours in one of the groups um, had started uh, going out with a, a guy without any real consideration for whether he was a Christian or not. Uh, the Bible talks about being evenly yoked with one another, um, that if you're going to be become one, if two are going to become one together, that they need to, as one, be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And she hadn't really any consideration for that and had started going out with this guy. He was a lovely bloke, but he, just, he wasn't following Jesus. Yeah, he, wasn't, he wouldn't have called himself a Christian. So uh, I encouraged one of the girls who had a, a good relationship with her, you know, if we're going to love her, we really need to open our eyes to this and challenge her on it. And so uh, she did that really faithfully, really gently over actually years, not just once, but kind of conversations over time. And in the end, that friendship, and um, the girl came back to me and said, I'm really devastated because I've really lost a friend in it. She'd really loved her, been really gentle, really patient, and pointed it out. But this girl... Was, was set on a course. She, wasn't, she didn't want to repent. She didn't want to kind of turn. Um, and she was, uh, her friend was just really heartbroken. And that, that, that's the genuine risk of living this out, is that it's wor- it is worth risking friendship and relationship for, for the sake of obedience to Jesus. Because as many of us know as well, it's just as painful to watch somebody just carry on in life not following Jesus, not being obedient to him, and suffering all the consequences of that. So in love, we correct one another, and we challenge each other, but also having drawn one another close and loved each other well. So in house groups in church life, are we doing this? It's helpful as well to think about where we are on the spectrum. Are we over here where we're happy to tell people the truth? You need to obey Jesus and do this. This is, this is the way that you're not following him, but slightly dismissive of the relationship, not really that bothered about whether the relationship carries on, not too concerned about whether the person knows and understands and feels our love for them. Or are we over here on the spectrum where we love the person, they're a dear friend of us, um, 
And we don't really want to risk the relationship or friendship for the sake of bringing about obedience to Jesus. And so we're just more likely just leave it, sweep it under the carpet, because we don't really want to have to say anything. And the chances are that we slide to one or the other. You either slide towards just want to sweep it under the carpet and not really mention it. It's better if everyone just gets on, isn't it? Or you might be over here. I'm happy to tell people what's wrong, but I'm less bothered about whether I maintain any sort of friendship with them. And actually, if we're going to live life like Jesus and like Paul does here in this letter, we'll do both hand in hand. Love people dearly and help them follow Jesus obediently. Uh, Do the band want to come back up? So Paul lived with this passion for Jesus and his gospel message, a passion for teamwork, a passion uh, for teamwork in gospel and in mission, in church life. He had a passion to see the church and God's people um, become holy, set apart, obedient to Jesus, enjoying all that he has for them. And the way that Paul did it was that it was contagious, He was hoping that his words in this letter would ooze out of the letter into the hearts of the Corinthians and change their ways. And so our hope here at New Life is that the way that we live out our life as a church family is that it will bring about obedience to Jesus. The decisions we make, our priorities in life, the way that we worship Jesus throughout the whole of our lives would be contagious to one another and bring about greater obedience to Jesus as a family. That just as that cough in that RE classroom spreads, so too our obedience to Jesus would would do the same. Amen? Should we stand and get ready to worship in response? Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us wholeheartedly. You've not withheld anything from us. We know that you have, despite the fact we were sinners, despite the fact that we were opposed to you, that we belittled you, that we were sinners by nature, um, you've loved us all the same. And while we were still sinners, you died for us, having us in mind. You've loved us dearly, but you've not just left us that way. You've also um, warned us, you've corrected us, you've given us one another as a church family to disciple one another, to help each other, to become more like you, to be, be like you are and also do the things that you do. And so we need your spirit in this, Lord. We pray, increase our love for one another. We, we, we recognize we want to be like you, Jesus, drawing people near, loving them dearly. And also, Lord, we pray, give us the courage to challenge one another to obey Jesus wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.